All right, tonight is round three, ding, ding, of the uh, 2023 college football playoff rankings. To go around college football, out to the KDUS hotline we go. We're now joined in sports on by Eric Smith of USA Today. And, Eric, good to have you once again. Uh, let's uh, start with the Michigan story. Uh, actually, let, let's put off the Michigan story for a moment or two. Sorry, I'll get to that. I'll get to Texas A&M looking for a coach. Let's start with the CFP for tonight. Does Georgia tonight pass Ohio State with, uh, obviously, Georgia has wins against top 25 teams the last two weeks. And Ohio State's wins over Notre Dame and Penn State might be declining a little bit in significance. I think that's the conventional thought. It's just, you know, you never can tell with the committee what they're going to do. I mean, Georgia has, the last couple weeks, appeared to be the team that we thought they were going to be. And, And that's not surprising that they were a little bit slow out of the gate considering the amount of turnover they had. But I just get the feeling like they're peaking at the right time. The committee's going to notice this. Is it hugely significant right now? Probably not. I mean, you know, Georgia's playing another ranked team on the road when they go to Tennessee this week, and um, Ohio State's playing Minnesota at home. So if they're not number one this week, I bet it would be next week, as long as they don't lose. That makes sense. And if they both win out, everything's cool for them anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah, I do think there's an element of, you know, whether you're one or two, the seeding is – it could be significant depending on the other two yeah. teams that would make it. Um, one could make the argument that, uh, you know, maybe you'd rather play Florida State than play a team like Oregon if Oregon can make it. And I'm really high on Oregon. I think they're the best team in the Pac-12, and I think they'll win out, and I think they will uh, probably make the playoff, although it could be a little bit dicey between maybe them and Texas, but uh, if Texas were to win out. But, um you know, I'd rather play Florida State than a team like Oregon. I just, like I said, I'm really high on how they how they played, and it's certainly, from my opinion, should have won that game in uh, Seattle. But they'll have another chance to sort of get retribution uh, if they keep winning. Yeah, Dan Lanning, some odd decisions in that game, in my opinion, and uh, the opinion of others. Okay, so tonight, when ESPN has the top 25 countdown, what or who will you be most paying attention to during that countdown? Well, I don't – yeah, I mean, I think, the, like we talked about, the one and two, I, I'm not super invested in that, but I am really interested to see how they shake out uh, the one-loss team. Uh, Oregon has been ahead of Texas, um, and then you've got Alabama. Alabama is also playing great right now. Um, you know, I know a lot of people point at the head-to-head as being a big factor and the fact that Texas beat them, but, um, you know, that game was, was 10 weeks ago, and – me, Alabama is the most one of the most improved teams in the country, and if they played again, I would more favor Alabama to beat Texas than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, given the way Texas has been playing the last few weeks, albeit you know obviously with their backup quarterback. So, you know how they shake those out if they continue to keep Oregon edged ahead. I think I think they're in good shape. And then the other the other interesting question will be um, you got a series of one uh, two loss teams, and how they sort of stack up. You've got a Missouri. Got Ole Miss, uh, Oklahoma, a couple others that are trying to fight for those New Year's Six spots, and most of them is, are not going to be in conference championship games. So, if they win out, where does that, where do those pieces shake in regards to who can maybe get into a you know, Fiesta Bowl or a Cotton Bowl um, uh, over New Year's uh, weekend and whatnot? Because you know, for those programs, that would be significant. 
You mentioned Texas. One other thing about them, I thought that uh, Jonathan Brooks, their leading rusher, suffering the torn ECL that uh, will end his season. Uh, that was actually the biggest thing that happened in college football on Saturday, this past Saturday. Does that factor into where the uh, the, the, the college football, you know, the bowl committee, or excuse me, the, uh, the playoff committee might factor in what to do at Texas now? I don't think they'll do it certainly this week, but I do think they may keep an eye on just how they're performing. You know, who who's going to be the primary ball carrier? I mean, he, to me, he, I think you're right in many regards. Uh, he's been a difference that we did not anticipate for Texas. They obviously had B. John Robinson last year. Uh, he was dynamic, a uh, huge part of their success. Uh, they thought We thought they were going to take a big step back with whoever was going to replace him, and, and Brooks has been outstanding and really the guy they've leaned on uh, to, 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 for their run game. And even at the end of that TCU game when they were trying to uh, you know, keep the lead, he was the guy they were giving the ball to. And so um, you know, they don't have somebody that has been established uh, this year. They've got a, a couple young players who are really good and talented, obviously. Uh, and we'll see how they play. And if, if, you know, if they're not that standard, if they're not running the football, they're going to be a very different team. And so certainly the committee will look at that um, and how they perform you know, the last couple of weeks of the regular season. And they seem likely to get into the Big 12 championship game and you know, how they perform, whether it's Oklahoma State or they get a rematch with Kansas State or Oklahoma. Um, in a certain game, they're going to have to win and get in the mix for the playoffs. Eric Smith of USA Today, currently in the sports zone. Okay, on to Michigan. Uh, the question <laughs> is, uh, you know, we'll get to the on-the-field Michigan thing in a minute here. But, uh, you know, the injunction to get Harbaugh back in the field is going to be heard Friday in, 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 in an Ann Arbor court. I don't know if uh, the judge is going to be wearing a Michigan sweatshirt or how that works out. Is there any way to guess what the verdict might be on that Friday, you know, the Friday ceremony, uh, the circumstance of Friday? Let's put it that way. Uh, well, you know, this is maybe a little bit foreign territory in the legal uh, realm for me. Uh, yeah, me but I too. do think, you know, some of that external stuff in regards to it's obviously in a Michigan state court, not a federal court. Uh, you would like you would probably tend to, to think that, that then that's why Michigan filed the case there was to potentially get a more favorable ruling. This is really uncharted territory, I think, in college athletics where we've seen a school sue a conference. We've seen some lawsuits relative to the uh, NCAA where schools have sued over Potential punishment or player eligibility, things like that. But this is really uncharted territory. It seems, from a legal perspective, and you know, again, I'm layman's layman here, but that the Big Ten has followed whatever rules it has, and I think they would be exceptionally diligent, knowing the uh, scrutiny that they were going to be under for making this decision. Uh, that they followed the rules to a T, and they have the authority to make this decision. And if that's the case from a legal perspective, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, Michigan's going to try to argue, well, they didn't follow the procedures, which I've talked to a couple people, and, you know, so the idea is, well, when you don't have the facts on your side, you argue procedure. When you have the facts, you argue facts. And so the facts aren't really in, con- you know, in, in contention. There was this sign stealing going on, and it was extensive, and it was cheating. And they were found guilty. The question is, like, who should be punished and, you know, what authority the Big Ten has here. 
you know, and, and that that's one of those things where, you know, I would think it's pretty straightforward, but again, I'm not there privy to the arguments or what the court might be willing to decide. And I do think it's, you know, the fact that they're arguing this on a Friday before a game, assuming the team is going to travel on Friday to Maryland, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that adds another layer to this where we had the suspension the day before the Penn State game. Maybe it gets reinstated the day before this game. I mean, who knows? Okay, so here's another question. I, mean, I don't know if I should ask or you know whether you're equipped to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Harbaugh said on Monday he's going to be there on Friday. What what would he say if he's allowed to you know, make a you know stand of as to what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I I guess if he want you know his lawyer, the lawyers for the school want to put him on the stand to say I have no knowledge of any of this, what happened. That I guess is an attempt to try to alleviate the responsibility there, um, but again, I don't think the Big Ten Big Ten was very careful in how it worded its punishment because it didn't specifically say they were suspending Harbaugh because they knew he was aware of it. They were saying this was the best punishment for the school that didn't impact the players uh, and. You know, they were trying to get around the sort of argument that because they, as far as we know, there is no evidence of Harbaugh's direct involvement. Although it's, I mean, I can't imagine that he wasn't at least tangentially aware of most of what's going on. But that's a whole other story. The NCAA is going to do, is dealing with a whole series of information on this as well. None of this information is probably going to be part of the, the argument, but certainly having him there in court and his presence could have an impact on the judge, whether he testifies could have an impact on the judge. I mean, it's all part of this. It's like a circus and, and um, which is crazy, but that's sort of what college athletics has become these, these days. Circus is a good word. Okay. Back to what we're used to talking about. And you're of course talking and writing about Michigan on the field. What was most impressive about the win on Saturday at Penn state? Uh, I just think the way they physically dominated the game, uh, you know, Penn State's a really good def- defense. And while they didn't hit them with a lot of big plays, they just methodically ground them down. And honestly, I thought the play calling they had to take advantage of Penn State was really excellent. You know, you saw, especially early in, in the first half, they had a couple of third and longs where they ran the ball, taking advantage of Penn State trying to get after the quarterback that were successful. That was the uh, second touchdown where they scored, you know, third and 11 just really well-planned, well-conceived, uh, you know, play calling by Sharon Moore. And it, you know, I, I was, you were talking about this. It's like, if you didn't know Jim Harbaugh was suspended, uh, you would have thought he was there coaching and calling the plays. And that's mm-hmm. a testament to, to the coaching staff and how they, they carried out, you know, what happened. I mean, they probably had anticipated this might occur where he would be suspended before the game. Cause there's a lot of talk, obviously the week, leading up to it and they'd also obviously prepared for this because he hadn't coached the first three games of the season but in that kind of environment and that kind of game they didn't really flinch um and really they took it to penn state and penn state just didn't really have an answer especially offensively that you know that's for me from the penn state side the disappointment is how poor they played offensively and how unwilling they were to really challenge michigan uh you know they really seeded uh that you know in short yardage and things like that that they couldn't beat them head to head. And that was, I think, disappointing if you're a Penn State fan. 
Talking with Eric Smith from USA Today. So let's uh, you know, let's talk about the Penn State side here. James Franklin continues to fall short against uh, the top level opponents for the most part. Continues to change coordinators. Uh, at what point does this fall on Franklin, or are they just in too deep financially to do anything about that? I mean, this is the you know hard challenge for a program like Penn State. Uh, you know, I know that James Franklin gets a lot of criticism, and there's certainly, I've certainly been critical, and you know, like I just said, that I thought their performance was not up to their standard. That said, you know, he's winning nine or ten, eleven games a season. Uh, you know, his own, you know, but he's got to beat Ohio State, and Michigan. So the question is, um, what do you do about that? Do you try to uh, work around the edges? You know, change the coordinator? Um, you know. Obviously, recruiting-wise, they need to get in better players, especially at the skill position, to compete with those teams. But, you know, you make a change, and you never know what you're going to get. You could get somebody who's going to get them over the top, but is Penn State in a position to get that guy? Um, And there's not really an obvious choice from sort of the Penn State family or or somewhere that is a natural fit that you have a lot of confidence in that. So, you know, can they figure out a way – you know, to to improve with a guy that they know at, at, a, at a floor is a nine, maybe ten win coach, and you know that's that's a challenge for a lot of programs, and they try to re- aim high and they fall back because they don't pick the right guy. So talk with Eric Smith yeah, from think, US. Oh, go, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, My I'm just bad. gonna finish up. Yeah, like I was just gonna finish up to say, I think they're gonna stick with him. Some of it is the financial aspect, but I do think they really like. He's winning all the games that they should win. And there is something to be said for that. But he, and, and the scrutiny is going to be there. But you know, he, as much as anybody, knows what he has to do, and they have to figure out a way to get that done. Okay, so on to A&M we go. Uh, Jimbo Fisher's out. Why did uh, Fisher, Fisher, let's see, I think it's safe to say, fail? And f- let's, say, let's rephrase that. Fall so short of expectations. Why did that happen uh, in College Station for him? Well, I think it starts with the expectations. Um, you know, Jimbo Fisher came in as one of the few coaches who had actually won a national championship. But the expectations at Texas A&M are, to me, like extraordinarily outsized for what they've achieved over the course of 30 years. Um, they have not been – they have not – they've won one conference championship in, I think, 30 years. You know, they, they have aspirations to be in the playoff and to win national championships, but that's not really the pedigree – of that program. They haven't won a national championship, I think before world war two. So, you know, or since world war two. So like, you know, that's the first part is the idea that he was going to come in and make them better than Alabama, better than LSU, better than Georgia, you know, programs that have pedigree, but also wherewithal and coaching uh, infrastructure in place to win games was, was a high bar. And, you know, so that's the first part. And then the second part is they've heavily relied on NIL uh, in regards to their recruiting, and they've been really successful. But there's a downside to that in that you're recruiting players knowing that part of the decision process is the aspects of the money and what they're getting paid. And, and that's not a criticism of the players themselves, but, like, you've got to – 
it's not just about getting a group of players in that are really talented. It's about getting players in that fit what you're trying to do, who are motivated in this, all in the same direction and are focused on winning as a priority. And they have not succeeded in, in implementing that strategy for themselves because they, there's too many holes in the program. There's too many often individuals who are worried about their own circumstances. And it's just not been a good fit. Um, they've also really, really struggled offensively at the quarterback position. They've had in some really you know, talented players, but it just hasn't worked. And everything they've tried didn't work. And so that, that's why they're here. And who they get in, you know, they're going to obviously aim high again. And they're going to have those expectations because they have a huge investment from their fan base to, to, to want to win. But, you know, that's not been the history of the program. So it's, a, it's a going to be a pretty big challenge for whoever is, signs on and, and, and accepts it. Okay, so let's get to that next. I mean, if money's not a restriction <laughs> moving forward, who would be uh, you know, a realistic replacement in your mind? Well, I think that's the big question is, you know, I think that they will, would want somebody like a Dan Lanning. Uh, with, I think he would be a great fit. But, you know, listen to what Dan Lanning said yesterday. He's not going anywhere. I do think mm-hmm. somebody like Mike Elko, who was previously a defensive coordinator there, has been really, really good at Duke. And, you know, that's a hard place to win. But he has, in a very short period of time, got them, uh, you know, competent winning games that they, you know, you would never expect them to win almost winning games like they should have won against Carolina the other night. They probably should have beat Notre Dame. I mean, this is a team without an injury to the quarterback could be, you know, nine and one right now. Um, and so I think he's a really good fit. He's defensive, oriented to so that. I think will play there, but you know, the challenge for Mike Elko or whoever else they were going to bring is big. Like I said, they've got to get the offensive piece working. And so not just the head coach, but then, you know, who they get to run the offense, whether that is, an offensive-minded head coach, or it's somebody that that coach hires as a coordinator, it's going to be a really big hire, too. Eric, good stuff. I appreciate it. I look forward to doing it again, and uh, I'll try to leave the jurisprudence stuff out next time. But that's not my, that's <laughs> yeah, not well, my fault this time. Hopefully that won't be, will be over, hopefully, soon. <laughs> yes, that would be. I, I think you're tired of writing about it and talking about it. I'm <laughs> certainly tired of talking about it. So good stuff. Thanks, Excellent. Eric. Thank you.